Hey, ebook readers, right now, the Flight Attendant Joe series ebooks are only $2.99. That's Fasten Your Seatbelts and Eat Your Fucking Nuts, Flight Attendant Joe, and I'm Just Here for the Layovers on Amazon, iTunes, Nook, and Kobo, $2.99 each. Welcome to this episode of Grounded with Flight Attendant Joe. Today is April 20th, 2022. It's 420. So for all you lovely listeners out there who get to enjoy and indulge in cannabis where you're popping edibles and you're smoking joints and you're sucking on bongs, I don't don't know the terminology that kids are using these days. But if you are, congratulations, because you know us in the airline industry, we're not allowed to have that kind of fun. So if you are having an edible today, pop an extra one in your mouth for me. How's that sound? (laughs) This week, the dates have changed for Grounded with Flight Attendant Show. So instead of on Tuesdays, new episodes will air on Monday and Thursday. So new content coming from me and my incredibly amazing guests to your ears every Monday and Thursday on the Grounded with Flight Attendant Show podcast. You can subscribe and download on most podcast apps. I've also broken down and started a Patreon account. Um, I've had a couple of listeners reach out to me and say, hey, you know, we really are enjoying this podcast. We love it. How can we support it? How can we help you? And, you know, I was not going to do it, but then I thought, you know what? I might as well just put it out there and give people the opportunity to help out if they want. So if you go on patreon.com slash grounded with flight attendant, Joe, I've created all these different tiers where you can become a patron, you can support the podcast, but if you can't and you can't afford it, and if you don't want to, you don't have to, you can still subscribe and download and listen to grounded with flight attendant, Joe for free. This is just a way to um, help support the podcast. You know, it takes a lot of time, energy, a lot of equipment. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of my own money that goes into creating this podcast. So I wanted to put the option out there for anyone who would want to help support the podcast. So thank you very much. Let's get started with this podcast, shall we? Hey guys, Garen called in today and we discussed adoption. He has an extraordinary story. He was born in Sri Lanka, left on the steps of an orphanage and saved by two Americans who adopted him. He comes from a long line of adoptions. His adopted dad was adopted. He was adopted. Him and his husband have adopted two children, one from the United States and one from South Africa. And he goes through and we chatted about what that was like and the process and how long you have to wait. There's so many so many ifs and what's going on when it comes to adoption. I was fascinated by that. We discussed um, people that live in the United States that don't have passports and how if you've never left the country, you kind of live stagnant because you learn so much from stepping outside your comfort zone. He also made me cry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, Garen. Hey, Garen, welcome to Grounded with Flight Attendant Joe. I'm glad you could be on the podcast. Hey, Joe. Thank you so much for having me, man. I really, I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I find you to be very interesting and intriguing, and I think your story is something that so many people are going to want to dive into. So when I was creating my list of wishful guests, you were always on it. And I know we were supposed to record a couple weeks ago, but I was having a mental COVID-19 meltdown. So I, yeah, I couldn't function. (laughs) So I was like, please let's, (laughs) let's, let's postpone this for a moment. But, but we're back. Um, how are you? 
I'm great. I'm really good because um, I just got back from South Africa about, I don't know, four weeks ago. Now it is. And, um, you know, I mean, that was an incredible experience. On the other hand, we arrived back, we have arrived back into this crazy new world. And I think just like everyone, you know, we're trying to figure out what does the future look like and how do we, how do any of us operate going forward, you know, in terms of not seeing friends and family. So, no, I feel like I, I came off like a giant high and then came back into the United States on this sort of like, oh, wow, this is a very unprecedented situation, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, um, you were in South Africa to adopt a child. Am I correct? Correct. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, we were we've waited four years, four very long years to basically be able to go get our son, uh, Ima. And um, it, it, it's been one of the hardest things I've ever done in terms of just the process between the two countries and waiting and not knowing and having it fail and and then finally being able to get him. So we arrived we arrived there January twenty twenty eighth and uh we're there for six weeks. Wow. And we're lucky enough to return home from him just two days before South Africa shut down flights to the United States. Yeah, you could have um, possibly just ended up living there, which probably wouldn't be a bad yeah. thing, right? Right. Part of me was hoping. I mean, besides <laughs> I mean, financially, I was like, well, maybe we'll get stuck in Africa. Maybe yeah. we'll get stuck in Africa. But we've jumped right. way ahead. We've like jumped like 75% know, into your sorry. life. So I want to rewind back to you because you have this incredible love and passion for adoption. And it stems from you being adopted. Am I correct? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that with I think that that has informed everything that I've chosen to do in adopting my kids. Sure, yeah, my story starts a very long time ago. Um, well, you're not th- you're not world. that old. You're not <clears throat> very. I mean, come on. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, listen, I was adopted in 1986 in Sri Lanka, and um, basically, I was. Not the, not the day I was born, but no one knows really when. Um, sometime after, I was taken by, I'm not sure who, and left on the steps of a hospital, like outside on the steps of a hospital. And some amazing person who I wish I could talk to uh, took me inside, and I, I guess probably asked, like, is this anyone's baby? And uh, I wasn't. And so then they moved me to an orphanage, an orphanage in a, a part of the country, it's like the interior of the island, that's a sort of tea plantations and hills, and um, it's called Candy. And I was taken to an orphanage there, and I was deemed too malnourished to stay. So, like, they were essentially they were like, "This kid can't really be here because he's got too many malnourishment medical needs." Um, so, you're gonna have to transport him to a malnutrition center in Colombo, which is like the commercial capital of the uh, country. Uh, on the beach closest to the ocean. So I was transported there again by, I don't know who, and um, put into a malnutrition center. And it just so happened that at that time, there was an American couple from Louisiana who had just moved there to their aid workers. And they heard there was a boy. They wanted a boy. I was the only boy actually. And um, so they got, they got me <laughs> or I, and really I got them, which has been the gift of gift of a lifetime. Yeah. You got, you got, you got the gift of the lifetime. Um, so let me just wrap my brain around this. You were left 
on the steps of a hospital when you were how old? It, like baby, baby, baby. So it wasn't like the day I was born. It's not like, you know, they, they said that basically a baby showed up on the steps when he was weeks to months old, right? So it was very early. It was very early. I don't remember any of that. Now, do you know if your parents, the your adoptive <clears throat> parents, when they were in Sri Lanka, were they looking to adopt a baby or they were just there working and then you kind of just l- fell in their lap? So they had just left. They had just finished an assignment in the Philippines where they had adopted my sisters. My sister is Filipino. She's adopted from Cebu. Um, and when they completed their assignment there, they moved to Sri Lanka for a job and they were looking to have another child because they thought they could not have any children, biologically speaking. So that, yeah, they, they were looking for, a, for, um, a child. My dad and mom, I think really wanted a boy cause they had a girl and, um, you know, they, like I said, they got stuck with me. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a crazy story, I guess. And it feels, I've said it so many times over the years, it feels I, people always have this reaction. I'm like, wow. And I, I, I'm starting to feel that, I guess, you know, now, now that I've got my own kids, like I see why that's such a, wow, what a, what a, what a insane way to meet your parents or to be brought with your family. Right. Oh, I'm so lucky. Well, when you tell this story at this point now, I won't ask you your age, but I know you're younger than me, but at this (laughs) point, At this point in life, when you retell this story or when you listen back to this podcast episode, do you ever think like, wow, that's me? Because it's almost like it's someone else. You're telling the story of someone else's experience because your life is so different. Yeah, you're, that's a, I love that you just asked that question because I, that's so true. I mean, no, this, is, this may sound crazy, but sometimes I look at my hands and I think, wow, like that, like, like this like, I mean, this is going to sound insane. I look at my hands and I think like, wow, like, I've ha- this has been me forever. And, but this, I, this, like, this body started in a very different place. Does that make sense? Like, I think for most people who are not adopted, it's like, yeah, this is me. It's always been me. Here's my story. But I don't know a large, a large part of my story. And so when I look at my body, sometimes I'm thinking like, wow, you've gotten me so far. You know, like I, I feel so grateful that I've even really exist or that I made it. And I have a, a ton of, of course, guilt for knowing that probably there's a lot of oh, others who did not get I'm, as lucky as me. I'm so glad you just brought up guilt because I just wrote down guilt with a question mark because I want I was just going to ask you, like, do you suffer from survival guilt? I just spoke with my therapist last week and we had this conversation and I never realized I I'm guilty a lot. I feel guilty about my life and how lucky I am and how I'm in this incredible spot when so many people aren't. And I really ask, how did I get this lucky? Mm -hmm. Do you go through that? Do you ask yourself that? Oh, absolutely. Oh. I mean, it's been a part of my life for so long and it's, 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 um, I, I, I have, it's not an exaggeration to say I have, uh, laid in my many beds in many countries over many years, staring at the ceiling, thinking about the story and thinking, I wonder what happened to the rest of those kids. You know, did they all get adopted? Was I one of a couple that got adopted? And then something that's really interesting for me, uh, something that's happened relatively recently. Did you ever see that movie Lion, Joe? The movie Lion? Oh, yes. I read the, uh, yeah, I read the book too. I read the book first. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I thought that was an incredible story. And um, 
had gone to see the film whenever a couple of years ago when it came out. And the truth is, my parents had always done such a great job of giving me all the information that they knew and sort of celebrating the fact that me and my sister were adopted. So um, in my mind, somehow over the years, perhaps as a young child to make myself feel better, I had kind of always thought that, okay, probably what happened is my mother couldn't take care of me and she put me on those steps of a hospital knowing that someone would take me in. But after I watched The Lion, I remember walking out of the theater um, and thinking, wait, that there's no factual basis in that, in my story, right? Like, I don't know. Um, maybe I was taken from her. Maybe uh, she's still wondering where I am. You know, maybe maybe the sort of like happy, hey, your parent can take care of you and they put you in a very safe space is not true because there's nothing that's, um, you know, I could never, I don't have any evidence to prove that. And and seeing his story, uh, the I forget his name. Do you remember his name from Lion? What's his name? I can barely um, remember your name, so no, I do, <laughs> I do not, sir. But um, but uh, I did. I do. Um, I do know the story. Yes. Yeah. Um, I just thought, you know his story is that he basically got lost on a train, right? Traveled through all of India into northern India and couldn't speak the language, couldn't communicate, and they were like, "Oh, look, he was a kid without a family when he really did," and then he was taken to Australia for adoption, and it just called into question so many. Um, ideas that I have. Like, I wonder, I wonder what really happened. And I would love to know that story about, yeah. about you. Well, first of all, I looked him up. His name was Saru. Saru Riley. Yes. That's right. That's um, Saru Riley. Yes. You know, I have a, I, I run a very tight ship here. <laughs> <laughs> I got my laptop right here. I, I'm not Joe Rogan. I don't have an assistant yet. Um, <laughs> you will, you will wonder. Does too. the, Oh, thank you. Does the um, desire to find out if that story is true? Like, motivate you to go there to Sri Lanka and do a little research maybe one day to find out the true story? Or are you okay with thinking, all right, this is what I've been told. I've believed this for decades. I'm just going to believe it. And that's it. It was never pressing for me. It was never, and I've met other adopted kids who, who do feel that that strength strongly about it. You know, I, for me, it was never pressing. Um, I, however, I will say this. Um, my, my sort of driving force has always been not so much to know more about my story, but to adopt my own children. So now at the age of, uh, what am I, 34, I feel like I've accomplished that. I adopted one son from the United States, one from South Africa, which is very reflective of my life. Um, and I feel like now is the time where I feel comfortable enough having achieved that to now like delve back into my story and go back. So yes, once the world can return to a sense of normalcy, I would love, love travel back with my family and potentially investigate all of this, you know? And I think it's, uh, and, and Jamie, my husband, Jamie, he said something that was really insightful not too long ago. He said, you know, listen, Garen, you can think about this all you want, but the truth is you're in your mid thirties now. And so if you're having interest, even a little bit of interest in finding your biological family or parents or understanding that story, you know, you got to think that they're older than you. And so you're, you're always, the longer you wait, the less information is potentially available. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Um, I didn't meet my biological dad and my three siblings until I was 45. So I know I've watched your story. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. I, you know, as I was growing up, especially when I was in my forties, I was thinking, you know, when my mom had me, she was 26 and my biological father was 42. So I thought wow. when I was in my forties, I was like, oh, he's dead. I mean, he's not, he, he must be dead and nope, he's going to turn 90 this year. 
which wow. is so great wow. because my mom died at 56 and I was thinking, cause I only knew 50% of my medical background was, Oh, I'm fucked. Like if mm -hmm. I hit 60, I'm good. So do you, right. so you don't really know anything about your medical history of any of your biological parents? No. And my birthday is not even real. I mean, my birthday is a guess, right? It's a guess. Like they actually told my parents, look, this kid was born definitely in this year, but, um, we don't know like when he was born and we don't have a name for him. So the government issued a name and, and you can choose his birthday. So it's, yeah, there's no information. So they chose your birthday. Like, was it around the time that they're like, he's about three months old. So pick a date three months from now, yeah. three months ago. It, oh my yeah, God. Exactly. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that part always throws people too. I mean, it's sort of like born with, I always feel like I'm born without a birthday. You know, it's like, it's, it's, I mean, I celebrate November 29th is when we celebrate, but it's, it's obviously not really the day. So my birthday's November 10th. I mean, you could have been born on my birthday. I could, I maybe, maybe we're twins. <laughs> well, I've never been to Sri Lanka. So, you know, oh God, you know, your story is, it just really makes me think of my story too, but yours is so much more fascinating. I at least knew one of my parents. So how long did you guys live in Sri Lanka when your um, American parents adopted you or was it just an adoption and then you moved right to the States? No. So I was 11 months old when they finalized my adoption. And um, my mother, Nikki, and my father, Steve, they, um, they you know, finalized the adoption. And then we lived in Sri Lanka and Colombo until I was three. Oh, okay. So you lived there for yeah. a while. You grew up your toddler years in Sri Lanka. Yeah, like infants to toddler. Yeah, like actually, it's not, I don't I remember any of Sri Lanka. So uh, when I was three, we moved to South Africa, to Johannesburg, South Africa. And that's where my life, in my mind, you know, that's where my memory life begins. This is where I can remember life and my parents and yeah. So you don't remember any time when you lived in Sri Lanka. Have you ever gone back to Sri Lanka? Yeah. I don't remember any time when I lived there as a, uh, as a baby. And I have gone back in 2000, the year, uh, 2000, yeah, 2000, 2000, yeah, Christmas, 2000 into 2001. Uh, we were living in, and I know I'm jumping ahead, but I'll just, I'll keep it close here. We were living in Jordan in the middle East at that point. And I'm on Jordan and my parents really wanted to go back to Sri Lanka and to show me, you know, the country. Um, and it is, it's an exceptionally beautiful country. The people are so nice. I mean, just so huge smiles and very lovely. And just, I don't know, I can't say enough good things. I mean, I, and it, it is absolutely my goal to get back there now with my family. Now you said you're, um, I might have missed something. So your parents, they they adopted your sister in the Philippines, then they were in Sri Lanka, you lived in Jordan sometime, you lived in South Africa. Were they missionaries? No. Oh my God. Oh no, no. I, I don't, don't know. mean I know. You no, just... no, no, I don't mean out of judgment. I just laughed because oh my, God, no, you just... my mom was just, <laughs> you just I know. Pissed All off. the missionaries are like, uh you just I'm pissed off all <laughs> the um Mormons that listen. No more I don't think any Mormons listen, so you don't have to worry. I know. No, there's probably that one guy that's listening. Like, I don't even like this guy, Garen, anymore. No, listen, the reason I laugh is because my mom was a sex ed teacher. And I just feel like that's a little different than a, perhaps a missionary. She was a what? Um, I'm sorry. She was a what? <laughs> she was a sex ed teacher. Sexual <laughs> education teacher. Are you for real? Oh, was she, yeah. was she teaching like, you know, here, you use a condom. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. She was teaching biology and she was teaching sex ed to young South Africans who were, you know, um, young adults. Yeah. So that I laughed because, you know, my parents were, my parents were sort of this, uh, really an anomaly. I mean, they were a football player and almost like cheerleader type from South Louisiana who then, once they got together, decided that they were going to move to Africa in the Peace Corps. They moved to Botswana and they like just got, dove into this life that was all complete reversal of their entire upbringing and they were sort of hippies they were very liberal they were you know so just when you said missionary i was like no they were like probably completely opposite of no she was Um, teaching missionary position to south africa (laughs) (laughs) she was a missionary position educator yeah that's what it is (laughs) oh my god i'm sorry i don't mean to disrespect your mom she's like an angel for god's sake come on i love it i love it (laughs) So how was it like, so you're growing up with these Southern Louisiana parents that you're living all over the country. It's almost like it's not a real, it's not something you see every day. Like you would think that they would be conservative types of people. How did these liberals come out of Southern Louisiana? How do you get uh, a white man and woman from South Louisiana who have never seen anything I mean, in terms of the world, right? In terms of other cultures, other religions, um, different colored people. Um, they both said that they never went to school with a black person ever. Mm. How do you get that? Then, how do you get these people from that? Excuse me. <clears throat> sorry. From that to um, Peace Corps in Botswana, and then traveling all across Africa. And how was it growing up? Sorry, the question was, how was it to grow up with them? Is that what like, you Well, I think I asked you two questions. I'm sorry. One was, what's it like growing up in that such a diverse family? Your sister's from the Philippines. You're from Sri Lanka. Your parents are um, from the South in the United States. But then also, how do they, how are they, how do they become these liberal people who adopt children from around the world when they're coming from such a conservative part of the, of America, of the United States? Right. Right. Well, this, so they tell me, they have told me that once they entered into the Peace Corps in Botswana, their life completely changed. So I'm going to clear my voice again. I'm so sorry, Joe. Oh, my God. <clears throat> Do you have some water? I should have told you to have I water do. next to no, you. No, I have a whole thing. Lord not, Jesus. You know, I'm, in, I'm in quarantine. I've only talked to like a two and a half year old and a seven year old for the last 30 days. So I'm just. Is this like your first adult there we go. conversation yeah, since is, the pandemic? Right. I'm just, this is your, my first adult interaction. No, um, you know, they said that once they went to Africa, their whole life changed. They stopped being religious. They felt they had been fed a lot of bullshit um, as kids. And they realized they hadn't really understood that the most of the world, the rest of the world, and really the majority of the world lives in a very different way. And so it changed their outlook. It changed how they felt about uh, how they had been taught to feel, I should say, about different races. It changed how they felt about different religions. And they, um, that's how it transformed their life. And from there, they made the decision to then, you know, adopt children and whatnot. So I think it's fair to say, had they not gone to the Peace Corps in the 70s in Botswana, it would have been impossible for them to know that they wanted to start this very different life. Well, kudos for them for growing up in that environment and thinking, 
hey, I bet you I will learn a lot about the world and it's going to open my mind if I leave the United States. There's a lot of people, <laughs> this shocks me, there's a lot of people that, have, <laughs> that do not have passports. Yeah, like 80% of yeah. Americans don't have passports. That, like, that just blows my mind. And I'm not judging people, but in my mind, I'm just surprised because you don't realize how eye-opening it is and how much of an education you get just from stepping off the continent. 100%. Isn't it Mark Twain that has a, I can't quote it, but to paraphrase, he says, travel is basically the end of um, prejudice, right? Oh yeah! Like once you travel, you you start. You can't. You can't be. It's impossible. It really is because you see too much. You know. Well, if yeah, if you're around the same people all the time, and it's your comfort zone, and you're like, I just like being around white people, or if you're black, I just like being around black people or Hispanic, whatever. If you don't experience other cultures, you will never grow, and you'll never understand. And I just think that's a thing, like. In North America, we're, you know, Americans, well, people from the United States, I hate saying Americans because there's two continents that are called America. Yeah. So I think we're very right. arrogant and fucking cocky when we say, oh, <laughs> American. Actually, there's a lot of Amer people from Brazil are Americans. So settle down, like think, think before yeah, you right. speak. Um, but I think once you get out of the country and you can open up your mind, it's just... It, I've gotten more of an education as an adult leaving the United States than I ever did getting in school. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it, and, and what a gift. I mean, this is the thing I, I wish more people maybe would consider is we live in a country where we have the wealth um, that m most people or many people are able to achieve the, the financial position to travel, right? We have, um, a lot of countries don't have that. You never acquire the wealth because of your distance. For example, in South Africa, I've talked to many people who say, "Like, no, I've never, like, I've never been to America. It's too far. That would be too expensive, you know." And it's true. Like, only the the people that really are able to um, increase their personal wealth are able to leave and travel. And in the United States, you know, it's only a, we're from Boston or something. It's only like five hours to London, right? And then you can get anywhere in Europe. Um, and I just feel like I wish more people made use of that. But some, I sometimes too think that the United States is so insular. Like we almost feel like we exist and we're the, you know, there's that whole, we're the best, we exist. You know, we, why should we learn new languages? Because we all just speak English. I don't know. It's a, very, it's a very different experience from how I grew up, for sure. Absolutely. And I agree with you on that. Amer um, people that live in the United States are very insular and they don't think they need to learn other cultures or dabble in another language you know i've been to france you know i always heard the french were awful like oh the french are assholes they're terrible and then i finally went to paris and i was in a um in a cheese shop you know they have the cheese shops the bread shops yeah. the wine shops i'd be a thousand pounds if i lived there and um, which is only five pounds more than i am now so it's not that big of a deal but i remember standing in line this is a true story i was standing in line at the cheese store and there was a woman in front of me and she was yelling don't you people speak english how do i know what i'm supposed to order and i was like oh my god yep. the french aren't assholes we're right. assholes yeah, <laughs> in exactly. another country. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It was in just this, country. it was this, oh, it was just like, oh, wait a minute. The French aren't assholes. We're here in their country <laughs> demanding they speak English. 
Right. Yeah. What are the assholes? 100%, man. I've seen that so many times that I just, um, I just <laughs> <laughs> make sure I don't associate myself with the situation whatsoever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, I was going to walk out, but I wanted cheese. And I mean, at the (laughs) end of the day, (laughs) I have priorities. So, Um, but yeah, I wish more people, you know, I've, I wish more people had passports and I wish more people traveled and had that curiosity of, well, what's it like in this different country? I, um, but I agree with you also on the fact that a lot of poor countries can't travel. I just had a Lyft driver a couple of months ago, and I think he was from Pakistan, if I believe. And Mm -hmm. he's the only one in his, like in five generations (laughs) to leave the country. And I said, oh, do you, do your, does your family travel around there? And it's such an American thing to think, oh, do they try? And they're like, oh no, they, he doesn't, they don't leave the village. Like, yeah, like, but that's true. It's so that's different. True. I mean, I'm like, yeah, oh, they don't just drive different. to India. He's like, have you, do you understand the world? I was like, I do, but I've never been there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have a lot to think like the United States is, um, you can enter so many countries without acquiring a visa, right? And so many other countries require a visa for, for, to travel. So it's like on top of even just wanting to, even if you come up with the money to be able to travel, now you got to you know wait for a visa. You got to pay for that. Um, yeah, it's it's complicated. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, hopefully, the next generation, man. I'm looking at my kids. Hopefully, my kids and their friends. Hopefully, they just break this cycle and really, you know, hopefully explore the world more than the past generations have done. Well, of course they are. They're going to be the products of you and your husband. So they're going to be those. (laughs) And, you know, one's from the United States, one's from South Africa. We'll talk about that. Don't worry. But just the idea of, you know, you're doing what your parents did. Um, Yeah. You know, when you told me that you were left on the step of a hospital and you were malnutrition, malnourished and... They didn't even think, I'm sure they saved your life. You probably wouldn't have lived. Oh yeah. I've thought about that a lot, especially even I have, I have, um, you know, all sorts of thoughts around how is it that, um, you start in a place of being denied entry into an orphanage, right? Which seems to be like, <laughs> you would think almost any kid that shows up is like, yeah, great of it, you know? And they're like, no, this one, he's not allowed. So how that you start in that place and then you, you make your way to, you know, extraordinary experiences I've had throughout my entire life, um, all over the world and then here in the United States, uh, they absolutely saved my life. I mean, I have no question about that. Yeah. And I'm, I've, I've, I think I've done it. I hope I've done a great job over the years of telling them how grateful, you know, because um, I, I am. I really am. And there, there's a kind of a funny thing in, in my line of work where people often talk about winning the lottery. Like, hey, you guys want to go in as a group and play the lottery, which to me is a very American thing. I haven't really experienced it outside of this country. And um, and uh, I I never do. I never take part in it. And uh, no judgment to anyone who's doing it. But in my mind, I'm always thinking like, oh, no, I feel like I won the lottery. Like I 100% already did because, you know, you don't have this life without that chance. No. And that goes back to that, what we were talking about a little earlier about survival guilt, because, you know, you said something like, I wonder if those other kids were adopted. I wonder how their lives turned out. And there's a high probability, I don't want to speak in hyperbole, but there's a high probability their life did not turn out like yours. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I would, I would, I would 
I would play place that bet as well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you it's almost like you did win the lottery. And then when you were talking about that, I was like, I wonder, cause you know, while you're talking and I'm listening, my brain is also going a thousand miles an hour. So I was like, yeah. I wonder when he was a teenager, if he was a being a little shit asshole, his parents were like, we could have left you in that orphanage and you'd be dead. So do your homework. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, like I'm certain they've had that thought. Right. And, and like, you this know, little shit. Not saying it. yeah, this little undeserving asshole. Yeah, totally. A hundred percent. Um, the, they were so good about that, though. They never, I mean, I can never remember a time when they, they always said to me, you know, and my sister, and by the way, once we moved to South Africa when I was three, um, they had a, they had a baby biologically, the, the, the baby, they never, you know, they never thought they could have children. They just magically had a child. Well, not magically. They had sex. For sure. <laughs> and then they had a child. It was magical. Cause she's a missionary. <laughs> I guess she's a missionary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they had a child, uh, my buddy <laughs> Yale. And so we have, you know, because our family is not diverse enough. Right. We have the Filipino sister, the Sri Lankan brother, the two white parents from Louisiana. And then boom, this blonde haired baby born, born in, in South, South Africa. Africa. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. It was a nice, yeah. What? So when you just, so did you always want to, did you always think you'd have kids? Yeah. For as long as I can remember. Um, I always, and it's a little different. I always imagined that I would, um, grow up and I would adopt a little boy. And I never, for whatever reason, um, especially strange because I had such a wonderful parental model in my parents, uh, in their relationship, but I never imagined it would be, me and someone i don't know what that is honestly and uh, nothing you know nothing to do with being gay or straight or anything like that it was just um i just saw me uh hopefully financially uh, in a situation where i was able to adopt a kid and it was gonna be and it was me and a little boy that's kind of what i always thought and then of course it played out somewhat differently um and i'm really lucky you know i'm really lucky that i that, that i met someone who wanted to to sort of go on this down this path with me and um but yeah as long as i can remember I, i've always and i've always loved kids and i've always thought I mean, if i can if i know so viscerally how this changed my life i want to i want to if i can open that door for someone else you know what i mean like it's, it's oh, yeah, so I understand. I, I understand that so it's, so, it's been so um, important to my to my story and i would i would I'd love to give that um another kid that family that family yeah and Did, really, the truth is, these kids change you more than you change them. Like, I feel like, you know, that's what most adoptive parents say. Like, you, you adopt a kid, and people tell you, like, oh, it's so amazing that you did that. But the truth is, like, you learn so much from them, you know? Did you always want to adopt, or did you want to have your own biological children? No, I've never really thought about biological children. It's always been adoption. And that's probably yeah. because of your experience. Yeah, certainly. Okay. Um, certainly. So your first kid was a, so you met your, your spouse and you decide, did you guys both decide you wanted to adopt a kid? Did you have to convince them? Cause I always imagine, you know, you have to find that in the, in the gay world, you'd have to find the spouse who also wants to have children. Right. Correct. And I've met gay couples or I know of gay couples who have separated because that, you know, after being together for a number of years, one of them is like, I, I really want to adopt a child. 
uh, now that we're living in a world where you can, and the other one's like, that's never been something I want, and I've seen them uh, separate. So, yeah, it's a deal breaker. I mean, it has to be, right? I mean, how are you going to do that otherwise? Well, yeah, anytime you're in a relationship with someone and they don't agree with a big life choice like that, it's probably best to move on and find someone who see, who actually has your the goals that you have in mind. You know, yeah. don't date, yeah. you know, if you want to get married, you know, I think this happens a lot. You know, I want to get married. The guy's like, I'm never going to get married, but the woman still stays because she thinks he's going to change or he's going right. to want to get married. But why would you want to convince, why do you want to talk someone into getting married? They should be, they should want to get married. They should want to adopt a child. You shouldn't convince someone to have to do that. So you met your, yeah. you met your spouse and you were both on the same page with wanting to adopt a kid. No, so here's how this works. Out. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> here's how this because it it sort of plays at a different time. Listen, I met Jamie in 2000. And, uh, oh my God, when 2009 in um, oh wow 2008. Oh God, he's gonna hate me. Yeah, 2008, 2009 um, in DC, and at the time, you know, I was what 20. I was in my early 20s, and I I knew I wanted kids, but there's financially it was just not for me a possibility yet like i always wanted to make sure i did it at a time when you know i, I wouldn't have to be constantly thinking about how to make ends meet for a child so um i could sustain myself at that time but not really a kid and so when i met him it was like our third date i remember he said um so where are you on having kids or not having kids and i just i laughed i laughed because at the time it was so far from what i could imagine in terms of a timeline of, I thought, okay, maybe by the time I'm 30, you know? Um, so I said, well, I, look, I definitely want to have children. I've always wanted to adopt, you know, at that, by that point, I felt like I had told him much of my story. Um, and he, he said, yeah, me too. Um, and we said, we agreed. We said, okay, let's, let's come up with like a five-year plan. We both work really hard in our careers and we try to get to a certain place in our careers that we're going to be, feel fulfilled, but also financially viable, you know, financially viable to um, be able to adopt a child. So that's what we did. We worked for five years. And by the time I was 26, I was in a place and he was in a place where we could come together and adopt our first son, Mateo, who we adopted from uh, the Maryland, D.C. area. So you, um, you, your first, how old is your, how old is your first, your oldest son? Yeah, so my oldest son, Mateo, he's seven. He's seven already? Yeah, I know. Well, you knew him as a baby, but yeah, he's, wow. he's seven now. Yeah, He's seven. What grade <clears throat> is he in? He's in first grade. First grade. So when you guys set up this five-year plan to say, okay, within five years, we're going to adopt a child or whatnot, you, did you think of going outside the country? How did you think of going outside the country, and how hard or easy is it to adopt in the United States? So I feel like I've arrived at sort of the exact perfect time in, in the history of the United States because, um, you know, we were in 2012, yeah, in 2012, we were able to get married in D.C. Now, it was not federally, right? Mar the marriage equality had not come to the United States until sometime after 2012. I don't remember exactly the year. But in 2012, we were able to get married in D.C. And, and, adopt, and we were sort of directed towards a social worker who was like, you know, listen, guys, it's absolutely 100% possible in the eyes of the District of Columbia for a gay couple to adopt, and it's treated as equally as a heterosexual couple. So living in D.C. in 2012, 
even though marriage equality was not uh, the law of the land, but it was for DC, it made it super, super feasible. I mean, it was all, it was, it was so, uh, we were met with very few obstacles, you know, if any. So it, it was, because you adopted Mateo, um, he was a baby baby. Like, how old was he when you took him home? Two days old. Two days old. Because I've heard it's hard to adopt baby babies. I say baby babies, which means, you know, baby babies. Like, they just popped yeah. out of their mom. You clip the, the <clears throat> umbilical cord, and then you wrap them up and take them home. And I heard that that's difficult because people want those baby babies, so they're hard to come by. Nobody, you know, it seems like nobody wants to adopt a nine-year-old, but everybody wants a two-day-old. Right, right. Yeah, how unfortunate. Yeah. So yeah. how... Well, listen, we... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say how that... Would you like me to talk about how that happened? Oh, yes, please, please. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Um, so we sat down with our social worker and our lawyer, and they said, listen, you've got all these options. There are so many options across states. And this is where it, felt, it it can get a little feeling, um, almost fe it has a feeling of like a commercial aspect. They said, basically, you want an Asian kid, you go to California. You want a Mexican kid, you go to Texas. If you want a black kid, this area is great, the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, which is such a weird way to think about. Sounds like a market. Adoption. It sounds like a market for like a market. children. Yeah, that's weird. A hundred. Yeah, it's very strange. Um, and none of that mattered. Race, obviously, to us, had no, I just didn't care at all. Um, and so we they said there's a guy that uh, works here in, in the area and he operates a little differently because he uh, markets his, uh, he gives his you know name, number, his organization to jails and hospitals so that when a woman becomes oh. incarcerated and wants to place her child or shows up at the hospital with no adoption plan and says, I want to place my child, he is their call because he works so differently than most other people. You know, other agencies are like meeting birth mothers early and um, coming, showing birth mothers books of adoptive couples or potential couples that want to adopt. And these mothers are oftentimes choosing the families and then you go through the pregnancy with the mothers. And this was just such a different route. And she said uh, he gets a lot of babies and not a lot of people necessarily even know about his, his, uh, the way he operates. And I don't mean that to sound, you know, the way he operates is, I think, a, a very a unique way. It's a, and certainly it's a great, a great place to be when a mother shows up in a hospital and says, I don't want to place my, uh, keep my child. I'd like to place it with another couple. And I, I just thought about this. And, you know, they received the correct counseling and options. That's what happened. Um, we signed with, the, with uh, this person, this organization. And in three weeks, uh, Jamie was, we, were, we had just finished brunch and uh, we lived in Columbia Heights in D.C. And um, came home. It was like eleven o'clock, and Jamie was packing to travel to the UK for work. And the phone rang, and it was um, it was our guy. And I just knew because he didn't really call. He was like text more often or something, you know. And he said, "Hey, what are you guys doing?" I just looked at Jamie and I just I said, "You know, I just did that like the sign of don't say a word because I didn't want him to say, oh, 'Oh, I'm leaving to the UK.' You know, I said, just, we're here. We just had breakfast. How are you?' you know? He said. I'm great. He said, I have some exciting news. There was a baby that was born this morning and he's yours. So come get him. Oh my God. That, that seems, that seems too easy because I've always thought it was, you know, Oh, we're well, going to adopt this baby. Oh, the parents changed their mind. Like very lucky. Now, do you know who the biological parents are of Mateo? So no. Okay. But I will say that, um, 
I will say that it wasn't so because you just said it was so easy. I will follow that up with saying, so now we in two days were able to go get Mateo, right? And he became, I mean, he was in our custody and really he was our child for that moment. I mean, emotionally, that's how it felt. But for the next month, so for the next 30 days, the birth mother had the potential to come take him back. So we knew in the back of our minds for those first 30, 30 days that, you know, essentially we were babysitting and that the possibility existed that she could change her mind and legally should be well within her rights. Um, we were very lucky that after, actually, I do want to tell you this story. Um, I think four days into it, she called the adoption agency. This will, this will break your heart, I'm sure. We'll joke because I know how you feel about racial issues and whatnot. And she said she was a white woman. She's actually white and Mexican, and his father is black. And she said, um, listen, I just wanted to make sure that the child went to a family who will love him because I'm just so worried that no one will want him because he's biracial. Oh, you're going to make me that. Oh, my God. That's very oh, emotional. Right, well, no, I'm not. I've never yeah. cried on my podcast, but you know, sometimes, yeah. sometimes you, <laughs> I hate you. Sometimes, um, wait a minute. Um, sometimes you, you want to hear that, like this woman gave birth to her child. I'm crying. <laughs> this woman gave birth to her child, but she still wants to make sure that her child's going to be loved. And I, right. I think that's really powerful. You know what? I'm just going to make this statement, uh, this disclaimer that my emotions are like a fucking roller coaster right now. And I can, <laughs> I cry if the cat's shit and it smells. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that's, but you know, um, wow. Uh, so, yeah. so, wow. Um, that was, yeah, I bet this, you that made, for the next, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was very, it was very moving. And again, the, the director of the adoption agency, he said, you know, any time ever in the history of forever, when a birth mother has called us four days in, it's because they want the child back. And he said, I was sure, I was sure it was that. And he said, to hear her say that, I just felt, you know, it's, it's what probably most people listening to this podcast would feel is how in 2012, the year of Obama's second inauguration, um, the first black family to leave the United States and the executive branch. How is it that you have people living in a relatively um, educated and populated area, right? City center, uh, feeling like because they have a biracial child that no one would want that child. I mean, the president of the United States at that point was biracial, right? It's just hard to understand. It's hard to understand. I really, I remember thinking, wow, um, we've come so far and yet we haven't. Well, I think of I when I think of that I think of you know people give up people give up a I can't even speak now because you have me a, a fucking mess. Um, you know people give up kids up for adoption for so many reasons and sometimes most of the time it's a good thing that they gave up the child for adoption. Some parents cannot take care of their kids. Some, you know, you get pregnant and you're like, I, you know, I'm not going to be able to take care of this kid. I hope that someone will, I'm not going to have an abortion because, you know, my religious beliefs are just my beliefs in general. Hopefully somebody finds, um, somebody's going to love this child. I thought you were going to say, she called and said, I don't want gays adopting my kid because that's where my brain goes. Well, no, you know, she actually had was presented from what I was told, from what we were told. 
she was presented in the uh, in the hospital. He actually, the director, meaning he, the director, went and met her, and he said, "Listen, if you're sure about this, I represent lesbian mothers, gay fathers, or gay parents, or gay guys, I guess, uh, gay couples, excuse me, and then had her, and then straight couples. Are there any of these that you do not want?" And she said, "No, I'm fine with. I just I'm fine with anything. I just want him to go to a really loving home." So I just have that. I hope one day it's possible for me to meet her. Um, in the future when my child is older and I would love to tell her like I you know you gave me the biggest gift the best possible gift that someone could give another person and I'm just so I will never be able to really repay you or be you know so grateful um, and I hope I hope that she feels that we've done a good job you know at that point um, it's also worth saying that even after those 30 days when she uh, did not thankfully changed her mind we then had to search for six months for the father because she didn't know um she wasn't you know they weren't in a relationship it was like a one-night stand so our lawyers had to search for the father so really for the first seven months of his life we were just hoping hoping above hope that you know this boy was going to stay with us so in that way it's not an easy process right in that way it's emotionally quite difficult yeah i didn't realize that i didn't um, well i always had it in the back of my mind that the biological parents can come knocking on the door and say, hello, this is my baby. Now, um, there's a TV show right now on Hulu. It's based off a book. Reese Witherspoon is in it. Um, and so is Kerry Washington. It's called Little Fires Everywhere. And right now what's happening, hopefully I'm not spoiling it for everyone, but I'm going to. Um, one of um, Kerry Washington's co-workers in the show, she has a baby and leaves it on the, she can't take care of it. She's an Asian woman. She leaves it on the steps of the firehouse. It's adopted by local white family. And through all this drama and chaos, she finds out where her baby is. And now there's this big court battle because she wants the baby back. Mm. Um, yeah, well, so I can, wow. So I can, so if you get a chance, you should watch it because it kind of is a little bit of that storyline really reflects your life a little bit because you were left on the steps and you've adopted and I I will absolutely watch it. Yeah. Check that that out. Check that out. Now, at what point does Mateo know he's adopted? Yeah. So I've always sort of taken the route my parents did with us which is be so transparent about everything we know and celebrate him and of course he comes from a family where and i think you'd be hard-pressed to even find another family potentially i mean i'm sure maybe there's one other family but you know he's in a family where his one of his dads is adopted his brother's adopted his aunt's adopted his grandfather's adopted so but yeah my dad's adopted as well i forgot to mention that so he sees he actually, as a younger kid, when he was like four, he would laugh when would say that Jamie wasn't adopted because he thought, well, you're weird. Like, hey, you're just a biological <laughs> kid. Like, oh. you, know, like, you know who your so biological parents are, you <laughs> weirdo. <laughs> yeah, you're so strange. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, he knows. He knows. Yeah, both our kids know. Now, what's it like with the adoption paperwork? How long... You know, at what point can his mother say, I want to meet him? If she called you up right now and said, I want to meet him, would you say okay? Or would you say, let's wait a little bit. Let's wait till he's a teenager. Um, you know, that's a great question. I, first of all, I would sit down and have a really, really, really long conversation with my husband about what, how we feel about that. I mean, I think what we've decided so far is, is based upon what she said she wanted, which was after he's 18, he will be able to search for her. And, you know, we've been provided with certain documentation that allows 
for that to happen. Um, so I've never considered anything differently than that situation. Um, I think that now would just be a little early perhaps, but I would be thoughtful about it and I don't have all the answers. I think I would sit down and critically think about it. And, um, if we felt it was necessary to go ask our son, like what his feelings are about it, we'd certainly do that. Um, it's a complicated issue. You know, it's not like there's a right or wrong answer. It's just complex. And of course, with that comes introducing that into your kid's life so early can come with um, consequences, whether they're positive or negative. I don't know. Um, or both. So I, it's a great question. Honestly, I don't have an answer to that. I don't really, I would have to really think on that one. And I know that she, you know, she doesn't even know that if she had um, a boy or a girl. I don't think I said that either. So when she called, she said, I just hope this child, not sorry, this boy, this child, because she, when she um, gave birth to him, I, I would guess because she didn't want to feel the you know pain and emotion that we go into seeing a child and then having to release them. She didn't even see him. She just said, take the child. I don't want to know if the boy or girl just take him. So she's never really, you know, she didn't have a concept of, of like a little boy or girl in the world, just, a, just that she had a child that went to someone else. You know, I, I can understand that because I know that if I was a woman and I was giving my child up or a man and giving my child up or whatever, I probably wouldn't want to know the sex of the child either because for the rest of my life, I would think, I wonder what my little girl looks like. I wonder what my little boy, I wonder what, I wonder if he's out in the dirt. I wonder if she's dressing up and like this takes away of little of that pain. I personally think. Yeah, I think I can totally defense defensive posture, I think. And I, I think um, anyone that doesn't understand why someone could make that choice might want to search a little deeper in their heart, you know, because it's, I, 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 I really don't like it when people say things like, um, I mean, you know, I'm like so super liberal but in terms of the whole like no. uh, choice question is like, I, I don't like when people say, you know, we should not have the availability of uh, abortion for women, right? Women should not be able to make that choice. They can just place their kid for adoption. It's like, usually it's a man saying that. And also, I don't think any of us really could possibly understand how painful giving birth, carrying a child for nine months, and then giving birth and having to let it, you know, go into the world without you. None of us can imagine what that's like. I certainly can. Oh, no. You know? so, yeah, and, and we all know, let's... Let's call it like it is. If men were pregnant, abortions, you could yeah, get a pill right. at fucking CVS. Let's, let's, right, like, you could exactly. go into CVS and walk out right. there. Like, here, take this right. pill, you're done. I mean, abortions right. would be legal. They'd be, there. Yeah. it would be like Uber. An Uber doctor would come to your house and give you an abortion. Let's, let's not yeah, play games, right? Right. right. 100%, I mean, yeah. come on, let's be real. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. I'm still sniffling from my, from my <laughs> emotional roller coaster you put me on. You know, there's a lot of conservatives in the country who think that gay adoption is just the devil. And, mm -hmm. you know, what's what do you think about it once you hear or you somebody says something like, oh, a kid needs a mother? Mm. Um, I just feel bad for people that are so poorly educated, Joe. Like, that's where I sit. I just, you know, from afar, I see it. Obviously, we see it in the news and, you know. I just think I'm sorry that you've gotten this far in your life and that you, your mind is so small, like that you, 
that you would rather have a child, right? You'd rather have a child in the world living in an orphanage or foster homes instead of the loving home of of a same-sex couple. Like, what the fuck difference does it make? And I think, you know, anyone that meets uh, a family where you have two dads or two moms and kids, um, you see that these children from a very, very young age, they don't even, they have no prejudice. They're not like, hey, hang on, where's, there's supposed to be a woman here. Like, that's not a thing. Like, kids are, they want love, you know, they want attention, they want protection. And it really doesn't matter if that comes in the form of just one grandparent or um, a mother and her mother or a single father or two dads or two moms or, you know, whatever. It just doesn't, so I just, it's so hard for me to even really engage in that conversation because I feel like in 2020, that person has just not taken the time to educate themselves or to um, open your mind enough to see that, you know, differences exist in this world. It's also, Really interestingly enough, I think the same shit that people probably said back in the day when, um, back in the day, not even that far, into what, in the 60s and the 50s when you had interracial couples, right, who who were who were having babies, and people would say things like, you know, oh, I just can't, like, that's wrong. Like, those kids, to have two parents of a different races, like, what, they'll be so confused. Or, you know, they need, they need, you know, structure, they need two white parents, or they need two, I mean, look at where we are now. Like, that just seems so insane that anyone would ever hold that opinion and I hope that by the time that our children are old enough that and I think that this is the way the world is moving their friends will feel the same like yeah I don't see any difference in the fact that you have two dads you know well yes I agree with you on that and I think it you know like you said it comes from uneducated in ignorance. It comes from, and let's just let's just say that more Americans think that it's okay for LGBTQ people to adopt. It's that small percent, maybe like 35, 40% of the population who still has that mentality of, oh, gay people are going to molest children. That's why they want to adopt them because they don't realize gay dudes like us are not pedophiles. Like, right. I remember my mom, you know, let's bring it back to me. <laughs> I love to do that. Uh, hello. Come on. Hello. I love hearing all your stories. Um, my mom, you know, I didn't know my biological father. I just met him recently through Ancestry DNA. And I can remember right. when I was born, up until I was four, I didn't have a male figure in my life. And then my mother married a man who had been married before. He had never had his own biological kids. He seemed to marry, I think he was married once or twice before my mom. He seemed to marry women who have kids and then adopt them. So she meets this guy, he's an alcoholic, whatever. Well, he's a big, huge fucking pedophile, right? But he's not gay. He doesn't want to have sex with men. He marries women who have children. And then by the way, after he divorced my mother, he married a woman with three kids. God, it just never ends. But, oh, wow. um, so when somebody says something like, Oh, they need this. No, no, they, they just need loving parents. It doesn't matter if they're fucking gay, straight, white, black, orange, Hispanic, as long as they love their child and they don't damage them and hurt them. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, just um, like, leave your ignorance at home and just leave everyone else alone. So, but I was curious because you are a house with two dads, and I'm sure you've heard things, stupid comments like, "Oh, uh, they need they they need a mother and a father." And so, I was curious about what you thought of that. Well, I think you know we, we beyond just being two fathers. I think just the 
the uh, visual aspect of our family really stands out. When the four of us are moving through, let's say, an airport, you've got, you know, you've met my husband, he's like a six foot five white dude. And you've got me, you know, brown Sri Lankan kid, guy, person. And then you've got uh, this uh, Mexican black and white child. And then you've got a darkly complected South African child. So obviously we stand out and we, we know that. And so when we're moving through airports, um, you know, it's interesting because I, I do see a lot of times, as you, you know, as you walk into the gate area, uh, to, um, you know, waiting for your for the aircraft, it does seem like you get, you can very quickly read the faces of people who glance up and then whisper something um, or sort of look away and just will not even look at you. And then you get people, I mean, we've had people run up to us in the airport and say, like, I'm so sorry to bother you. I just want to say, like, you're such a beautiful family. You know, so oh, you see. Oh, that's nice. That's get, nice. Yeah. Very nice. And you get, you, you see both sides of that. Um, obviously, flight crews are always so lovely to us. And I just, I'm so grateful to them. Um, you see that you get the spectrum, right? You get, you get to see that. Yeah, this is an issue that divides a lot of America. Like you said, the majority of Americans are cool with it, but there's still a lot of people who maybe it's their first time seeing it. And maybe, um, maybe they have a problem with the fact that it's both a racial, <laughs> racial thing and a, and a, uh, a gay thing. You know, maybe they're feeling like, and they haven't, they're not okay with, uh, you know, my grandparents weren't right. Even after my parents adopted these kids from different countries, my grandparents were still racist and homophobic and thought that white people were better. And it was very, to go back to, they're from South Louisiana in the summers and to walk into their world for, for two months. It was so um, different and so far from, imagine we were growing up in, South Africa or Gambia or Jordan or um, Jamaica is another place I lived. Growing up in all these countries, and then in the summer you go back to South Louisiana, and you know, just the comments that are made over the two months you're there, you just know, you just know that you're living in a completely different world. Now, do you remember? So, being that person in that environment. Did they make you feel uncomfortable? Did your grandparents say negative things to you? Or did they kind of just say, well, you're grandfathered into the family, so we're really talking about everyone else? Yeah, they made it very clear that they loved us, but, like, black people weren't okay. Ooh. So, like, and I'm, I'm pretty dark, right? I'm a pretty dark, dark dude, and I feel like, you know, I'm darker than a lot of black people. So it's like, you know, their basis, their judgment, their basis was on color, and I sort of got this, this task. Right. In their mind, I was kind of like, I got this like hall pass. And then, and yet, like, but black people and Mexican people were, you know, what was wrong with the world. So as a kid, every summer sitting there listening to conversations about that, it's obviously at a certain point, you start to internalize that. Like, hey, hang on. I know I'm not, you know, black or Mexican, but I'm the same color. And ultimately, they're talking about color. Um, so I, yeah, very much got to see that. And, um, and, you know, I, I think, I think, I think sure if you even know the story but oh, in 2012 after jamie and i had had you know decided to never really serious and that we were going down this road together i called my grandmother and said um so hey listen uh, i wanted to tell you that i'm dating someone and his name is jamie and there was this long long just silence and then you know this heavy breath and then she said well is he at least white Oh my God. I knew you were going to say that. I knew it. Holy shit. And I said, yeah, holy shit. 
And I said, um, you know, he is, he is white. But I said, Grandma, you know, that's, that's like a, it's kind of a hurtful thing to say because, you know, one, I'm not white. And also, I've dated people of, of really all races. I've dated you know, people who are Asian and black and everything. And I've, 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 that's never been a basis for why I've dated or slept with someone. And, um, you know, he just does have to be white. Right. Um, but it's sort of weird that you'd even say that. And then she, 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 and again, another long pause. And then she says, Oh honey, you'll always be white to me. You know, I always have something to say, but I don't even know how to respond to, to your grandmother <laughs> or your grandfather. Now, when you're a, when you're a kid, are they alive or are they, have they passed away? They have since passed away. Okay. In, the, in recent years, they've passed away. Now, um, at least we know they won't be voting for Donald Trump in 2020. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I am the worst true. person. But no, now, no, when, when you're a kid and you're hearing all these things, do you like pull your parents aside and say, what the fuck's up with grandma and grandpa? Yeah. I mean, they, they were definitely, I mean, my parents were very smart about that, right? Understanding, they were very perceptive, understanding like we just arrived back from Africa where you're going to an international school where your best friends are from all over the world and no one looks the same. And, um, and now we're back in our small town where we grew up with all of our racism and our prejudice and you guys are exposed to it. And they would say, look, guys, this is, this is not, you know, this is not right. What they're saying is not right. And this is not how we taught you to see the world. And this is not how we believe people should be treated. And, um, they are just racist. And, um, that's sometimes what happens in smaller towns in the South of the United States. And you know, I say that now as an adult, I feel like a hesitancy. Like, I feel like someone's going to be looking at this thinking I'm an asshole. But, you know, listen, there's plenty of people in this, in the South who are not, who are not, you know, obviously who are progressive people, but it's not an untrue statement to say that oftentimes in places um, that are, that are, not, that are smaller towns in more remote parts of the United States, you, you will find, you know, attitudes that, that are racist or homophobic or whatever, sexist. Um, it's unfortunate, but it's the truth. Let me ask you, now that you have children who um, are different races than what you are and your husband are, say one of your parents, you or Jamie's parents were racist, like full-blown racist coming out and saying, well, at least he's not black, that type of racist, because that's fucking racist. Um, would you not bring your children around them? Yes, okay. I would not bring my children around. Them. Yeah, I would actually have to pull my dad aside and say, "Listen, you ever say that again, and you will, you won't be hanging out with your grandchildren anymore, because you know the consequences of you saying that are so psychologically, um, you know, that's last. You, you know, you know, right? Gay, gay guys always know this, right? Like you can remember the first time you heard some older straight guy say, you know, when you were a kid, like make a reference to a faggot. And that stays in your mind. Like it exists. It stays with you because you know that's the first time you're taught that being gay is wrong. Right, or right, right. Or it's something. And you carry that your whole life. And that's the same with race. It's the same with gender. You know, like young kids are very impressionable and, and it's a lot, it has a lasting impact. So yeah, I wouldn't put up with that shit. No way. No way. For my kids, I wouldn't put up with that shit. Yeah. I wonder if it has to do with the... Um because it's 2020 and not the eighties anymore. I think back in the eighties, you will, people allowed people to be racist, to stay ignorant shit more. It was more acceptable to just throw it under the rug than it is today. Today. It's almost like we have a duty to call out these people. 
Right, unless you're the president of the United States, and then you just say whatever the fuck you want. Well, well, and yeah, and unless you're <laughs> one of his fanatics too. But it's like right. it, it, today, today, I think it's my duty to call out people. So if I'm in a room and somebody drops something racist, I'm going to say, "What? <laughs> a minute!" Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I, you're you're fucking ignorant, and I'm not going to tolerate it. Like, and I have no qualms in doing that. But I think, Joe, I think you're in the minority there. Like, I honestly feel like I agree with you in terms of the, the place in the world we are that you can now. And it is sort of um, not popular, but like people do speak up on behalf of others. But I think you're still in the minority. Like, I think and what I mean by that is I think it's so wonderful um, that you would speak out against against any of these things. Because, you know, I've, I've for very long said, listen, it takes the majority to speak out on behalf of the minority. Right. So it takes men to speak out when women are being spoken about in a disparaging way or, 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 or not treated as equal. It takes straight men in particular to speak out against homophobia because they're the bigger, biggest sort of like um, the people who are, you know, oftentimes people who are being who are super homophobic are straight guys. And, um, and it takes white people to speak out against um, racism towards people of color. And if everyone would do that, if we could have people that would do that, I think we'd all find ourselves in a much better place. You know, I tell that my brother, you know, who's straight and white, I always tell him that, like, yeah, you have a platform, you have a the power in your voice is so much louder than mine. I don't, I don't like that. But as a gay brown guy, I feel like as a straight white dude, you speaking out against any of these issues, people will listen to you before they listen to me. And I think that's a truth, a truth, you know, it's an unfortunate truth, but I think, I think it's, it's absolutely the truth. I agree. I think that um, the majority people speaking out and defending and protecting the minority people is how you make change. Because if you're in a group of five or six people and you're all dropping and, you know, you're standing there and two of them are dropping the N-bomb or they're like, faggot this, faggot that, whatnot. And the other two are kind of scared, like, oh, God, I don't want to say that. If you're the one that says, dude, like my uh, my cousin's gay and he's really cool. So settle down. Now my yeah. fr- now I need to take a sip of water. Crying, getting all emotional. <laughs> my God, what are you doing to me? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this is you know, this is this is important stuff. I mean, this is how this is how minds are changed. I actually have a friend. I love him. He's great. And um, he told me that he grew up in a very uneducated um, place and time and his parents were homophobic and all of these things. And he can remember, uh, sir, he was in the military, he was in San Francisco walking down the street with, with, uh, some of you know, his friends and, um, seeing two guys kiss for the first time. And he said, I can remember saying out loud, like, what the fuck is that shit? And his mm. friend who was also in the military turned to him straight friend as well and said, Hey, don't be saying stuff like that. And he said, I remember that moment was the moment that it made me question myself. Because someone who was someone I considered a friend and um, a straight guy sort of checked me and said, "Hey, why would you be saying that?" And he said it changed the my, the entire way that I that I treated gay people and talked, you know, interacted with gay people and my thoughts about gay people. And I think um, that's a powerful story because if you can do that with um, sexual orientation, you know that certainly applies to race, gender, handicap. You know, and talking. I try to make sure my kids are aware. You know, like I bought my son's this book called The Heart of a Boy, and it's it's really the voices of boys that they're pictured, and it's it's really um, their thoughts and about life, and it, they have examples of boys in this book that are 
everything. Down syndrome, um, you know, uh, quadriplegic. Um, I don't know, like any kind of any kind of um, you know any disability kind of uh, handicap or, or thing, disability any, or anything. anything yeah, that's, that's, anything that's deci- decided to be different, right? Quote. I just yeah, I, think that's I just did different. air quotes. Different. Yeah. I don't even like the word handicap. I mean, it's just think it's just different. You did know? I say? Different oh my god! Did I say handicap? I'm going to get no, no. I did. Oh. no, no. I oh did. no! I did. I did. Well, yeah. I don't like even saying that word. It's well, just, it's yeah, okay you're to right. say. Anything that is different I mean, than experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that a lot of that comes from people who don't know the different person. So if you're somebody who think like, oh, I don't like gay people, it's probably because you don't know any. Right. Yeah. Of course. Um, oh, right? black people are dangerous because you don't know any Mexicans are going to rape us because you don't know anybody. You don't know these people right. once you and this goes back to getting out of the fucking country, understanding other cultures. You know, not all Mexicans are going to rob and rape you like, you know, the, uh, Americans, can, <laughs> people in the United States can rob and rape you. I mean, it ha- that <laughs> happens more than the Mexicans coming over and doing it. So. Like, it's all about that experience. But I just received um, this message from a listener for the podcast. And she said, um, you know, I don't have many LGBTQ friends. And I'm learning so much about that lifestyle from your podcast and your guests. And I was just like, Yes. And then I got a, I actually got an iTunes review from a gentleman. He's like, I don't think this podcast, I'm not the target for this podcast. I'm a white Republican in Missouri, but I love it. And I'm getting so much information from, and I was just like, oh my God, you know what? I should just close up shop. I reached one person. That's great. I, reached, <laughs> I have reached, I have, I have reached two people to open up their mind to different cultures and lifestyles. I could just close up shop and be done. Okay. Well, listen, just imagine, you know, just imagine where this is going. I mean, I already think you're on, actually, Jamie and I were talking about last night. He's like, he's like, Joe's going to, Joe, if he's not already, he is going to be so big. And I said, I know he is. We, we've always known this. Is you he know, talking you're, about you're, my weight? God damn it. <laughs> I thought he liked me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, this isn't, I mean, I hope I'm so, right. But isn't that rewarding, right? That yeah. some guy in Missouri writes you and says, <sighs> like, you're, you're changing the way I think. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's almost like that's all I want. All I want to do is to get somebody to think, oh, I never thought of it that way. So this is good. Right. Um, but going right. back to, you know, when you heard the word, like when you're in your grandparents' house and you're hearing these things. I can remember being a little kid, you know, I was an only child back then. And um, my parents used the word queer very Mm. negatively. Like, oh, those look like there was a gay bar in Hartford called Chezez or something. And it was close to the bar that my parents went to, you know, they were big alcoholics. And um, I think they drove drunk more than they drove sober. How I'm alive after the (laughs) seventies being in that car with no seatbelt. I have no clue, but they would drive by. Yeah. No seatbelts hanging out the window, parents drunk. I don't even know how I made it. So (laughs) <laughs> they would drive by this gay bar called Chez Ez and my, and like, if you, if you saw them outside smoking or they're outside it, and you know, this is the late seventies, early eighties, big, thick mustaches, think like Freddie Mercury. And, right. um, my mom would be like, look at those fucking queers. Look at them fucking queers. And now I'm like eight or nine and I'm in the back seat. I don't really know I'm gay. Right. But now I know, Oh, two guys that look like, 
porn stars. I wouldn't think that till later. <laughs> Two guys hanging out outside a bar. If they like each other, they're queer and that's bad. So, you know, I grew up hating the word queer for the longest time. Like I wouldn't mind, I'd say faggot. I'd be like faggot, whatever. But the word queer would just trigger me. Mm -hmm. Until yeah. the TV show Queers Folk came on. And then I said, oh, maybe it's not that bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Look, look, at, look at how long that has stayed in your brain, you know? Yes. I still even think like you, because I actually didn't grow up have, facing almost any adversity in terms of when I came out or, you know, very little, I'd say. And certainly when I was, your, you know, you're talking about being a child, I didn't because I wasn't out as a child. Um, but my husband did he would he said people knew he was gay when he was really young he just wasn't interested in like stereotypical you know things that but he was interested in sports and whatnot um and he grew up in a small town and he said people called him you know faggot and whatnot like when he was very early and when he was very young excuse me and um i think he had a lot of really sort of traumatizing experiences including from his father so we've been together 11 years now maybe 12 11 12 years and uh, if you ever interview him, he is going to slam me for this, not never knowing how long we've been together. But we've been together for 11, 12 years now. And, you know, I still think when, I, when we're in public and I reach down to hold his hand, I can still feel like a hesitancy. Like, even though he knows, like, and it's okay, he feels like he's in, you know, it's like his brain is sending him signals like, no, you do this, and you're putting yourself in a position of being ostracized by potentially someone walking by. I hate that that I hate that that is in his head, you know. Oh, it's um, oh, it's in my head too. When my I I it's very hard for me to hold my husband's hand in public. It's almost like he, he reaches out to grab me and I look at his hand like it's on fire. Like do you want me to douse it with water because I'm not going to hold it. I'm not going to like I think the longest I can hold his hand walking down the road is like a minute. And then, and that's long, <laughs> right? Um, um, do you know that that's the longest fucking minute of my life right. as we're holding? And we could be in like San Francisco on Castro Street. We could be like the gayest place in the world, and he wants to hold my hand. And for that whole minute, I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to hold his hand for a minute. I'm going to count to sixty, and then that doesn't make him think <laughs> I hate him, but it also protects me because I start panicking. The moment he puts his hand out to hold mine, I, my heart starts racing. What's everyone thinking? And and what what are they going to think? Am I going to get egged? Am I going to get beat up? What's going to happen? Um, so right. all you heterosexuals listening, when you just hold your hand randomly in the streets, congratulations that you didn't have parents or a society that made you feel embarrassed to show affection. 100%. I think about that at, at, at airports quite a bit, actually, because, you know, you, you drop your, your person off at the airport. And you want to hug them and give them a kiss. And even that, even in that moment, you're thinking like, is, I don't know, is someone going to, I mean, and, and do we do it? Yes. But I know that both of us on some level are thinking like, I wonder if there's going to be a reaction, a negative oh, yeah. reaction, you know? And that's terrible. You shouldn't have to think that in that moment, you know? No, you shouldn't. So when I see straight people yeah. like kissing each other for, you know, it's like a nice to really, you know, they're really enjoying that moment. And, and you know, I, I, I'm happy for them. I really am. And, and I, I hope that one day we can all do this without feeling like someone's going to, you know, throw something at us. Oh, but I hate, I don't care. I don't care if you're heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, tri, whatever. I just hate, try. I don't like people. Yeah, try anything. What's, um, <laughs> those are all those heterosexual pilots. They're try. They'll try it when they're drinking. Oh no. But, um, 
I don't, I just, I'm just not a fan of public displays of affection, no matter what. I don't care who you are. Like if I'm in the airport and people are making out, I'm like, get a room, but I will hug. And, and that's the weird thing. Like if I'm, I'm, I'll hug and kiss my husband goodbye in the airport. Cause a lot of the time I'm in my uniform and let somebody say something. Cause then they're the ones who are going to be left behind when we crash. Yeah. <laughs> but like just to hold his hand walking down the street is so difficult. And I kind of think of myself as someone who gives zero fucks about what people think. I kind of pride myself in that. Like I don't give a fuck, mm -hmm. but that mm -hmm. one thing holding my, and my husband of 16 years holding his hand, walking down the street, I'd, I, I'd contemplate jumping into a lake with crocodiles. First, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and just the truth is probably if you go and that, you know, you interviewed, I don't know, a thousand gay guys, gay men and women, perhaps, you know, you would find out and probably most people have yeah. had, in this time, have had that. And it's so unfortunate. I think the thing is, once you have children, you need to, I always feel like you need to set the example in the situation. I don't want my kids to not see their parents showing affection because they're afraid of something else. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I want them to grow oh, up yeah. seeing that, like, we are showing affection to each other in the way that anybody uh, can and, and should maybe. Um, and there's nothing for us to be afraid of. And if someone does say something, I'll be the first to say, you know, shut the fuck up or whatever. Um, but, you know, when you're met with violence, the other thing is you don't want to come, put yourself in a situation where you're in a violent altercation in front of your children because, you know, that can be one, dangerous for your kids, and two, um, that can kind of traumatize a kid too, you know? Right. Yeah. your parent oh, gets yeah. beat up or whatnot. Yeah. So it's a, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one, man. So the, the message to send out today is ladies and gentlemen of parents of children, be careful with what you say around them because one word can fuck them up for decades. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, let's speak it right. the way it is. It's like one, that one word, my mom would use queer that one word stuck with me for decades. So I am really yeah. feel terrible that that happened to you. Oh I mean, yeah. I still like, don't, I still don't yeah. like the word. It's not my word of choice. Like when, even yeah, when I, mean, I still hear yeah. it, I'm like, you know, but whatever. Mm. Mm. So let's go to your second baby. Cause one wasn't enough. It's almost like you're Angelina Jolie. <laughs> so, you're Jolie. like Madonna now. Now you're, a, now you're adopting <laughs> babies from Africa. How did you go? <laughs> you would, and your husband loves her. So that's probably, he's like, let's, let's adopt one from Africa. But no, seriously, how did you choose South Africa to, um, uh, welcome your second child into your home? Okay, so I feel like South Africa came in, in, and I'm not a person that believes in meant to be, or you know, I'm not religious or whatnot. But I feel like South Africa it sort of happened in in an incredible way. And here's what happened: after we adopted Mateo, after a couple of years, we were still living in DC, and we decided we wanted to adopt another child. So we called all the same players: same social worker, lawyer, adoption uh, agency. And one night, on it's actually on my birthday got a call and the um, director of the adoption agency said, congratulations again, guys. You got a little girl this time. Um, I'll have more information for you in the morning as to when he comes to here. And we were, you know, we were, we were ecstatic, right? As, as ecstatic as the first time when we heard about Mateo. And you go through all the same things. You call your parents and you call your best friends and you, you know, I went and drove over and picked up my sister and brought her to her house. And 
we all went to bed very excited. The next morning, he called and said, I'm so sorry. The mother actually did change her mind. She also tested positive for three narcotics. So she's not keeping the child, but the child cannot go to you. And the child is being taken into foster care. So it was, it was, you know, I don't want to, um, it was, it was hard in that moment. It was, has not been hard for like a very extended period of time, but it was hard in that moment. And we had kind of hung around DC, not traveled because we thought the potential to get a child was, was really imminent. So once that we came to terms with the fact that, that failed, um, I turned to Jamie and I said, listen, we have been sitting here for a while and not traveling because we were prepping to have another kid. Let's go live. Like, let's, let's, let's go, let's go somewhere. You mean the tail, let's go travel somewhere. Um, and he said, well, where do you want to go? I said, let's go back to South Africa. Like I grew up there. I would love to go back to you guys. And he had that, he, by that time had worked there, um, on different, on different projects. So, um, he, you know, he was like, you want to go to South Africa in two weeks? And I was like, yes, we can, we can make this happen. And um, so I convinced them. And around that time, uh, I had gotten on the phone with our social worker and I said, hey, listen, um, I wanted to tell you, I'm thank you for everything. We were matched to the girl last night and then the mother changed her mind and I told her the story. And I said, I don't think we're going to go down this route again. I think we've done it and we've had an amazing situation with Mateo and we've uh, met this sort of uh, failure in a, in a placement with this uh, little girl. I said, I think we're going to look at other options. Um, she said, well, you know what, Garen? There's this new program that just opened up in South Africa, and it is open to gay dads. And I, I was like, in South Africa? And she said, yeah. I said, she said, you, like, would you be interested? I said, I would be so interested. I said, I, that's like where I feel I'm from. I mean, I, that's my first memories of life. It's all sort of, you know, it's where my life began. My, that's how I feel. Um, and so she said, well, um, what's great about it is it is the only country, and Joe, I know you're going to be surprised by this, is the only country in the world right now that married gay couples can adopt from besides the United States. That's incredible. So the only country in the, wor- the, only country in the world, in the developing world, let's say, that has, a, has children, you know, that married gay couples can adopt. So previously how this worked was like, if you were not married, the United States would allow one of you to go over, adopt the kid, come back, and then your your partner would adopt in, oh, in the country. In the United okay, States. so you could right. still be but gay and adopt, but you yeah. had to you could only one. It couldn't be like both of you adopting at the same time from the country. Exactly, okay. and and so so yeah. Well, actually, even on those forms, they didn't disclose that you were gay. Like, so it was basically a single person went to adopt a child, oh, okay. right, and then you come home. So anyway, this was the first uh, international, it's a Hague agreement. Hague is an international um, convention between countries, an agreement of two countries on how to operate in the uh, in adoption and other matters. And so she suggested this, and I told Jamie, and we got on a plane to South Africa two weeks later to just go have, go have a holiday, like just go be there. And during that time, we were like, yeah, we're adopting from here. And we thought it would, would be, <laughs> that, that was, what was that? I don't know, 20, I don't know, it was, 2016 we thought we'd be back later in 2016 and you know we took all the way into 2020 so four years how that's how we got emmanuel emmanuel oh now how many kids were on your radar to adopt or was he the first one it just took that long now he was the only one i mean there was no one it's a lot of paperwork and waiting and being matched south africa has to agree the united states has to agree you know, there's tons of documentation, FBI documentation, local police documentation. It's crazy. It's crazy amount of work, honestly. It's, it's, it's the hardest part of it in a way. 
Um, and then, you know, after you complete your paperwork, then your, your weight begins. Um, and so, EMA, we call them EMA, EMA, EMA. So okay, if you're in South cute. Africa and you're, yeah, if you're in South Africa, you know, um, if your name's Emmanuel, your nickname is EMA. And so, as soon as we met him, because he's two and a half years old, that was, like, he would reference himself. Like, EMA, this is EMA's Wata. This is, you know, so, <laughs> yeah, it's like, on. So Ima, you know, was not even born when we started the paperwork. He was born in July of 2017, and it just took, like, what, two and a half years for him to become available for adoption. Why does it take that long? What What's happening in those two and a half years? Yeah, that's, a, that's crazy. So basically, I, I don't want to... It's hard to imagine why it would take that long. But he essentially... Came, he was delivered. His mother, you know, gave birth to him. She had created an adoption plan. She definitely wanted to place her son for adoption. She, uh, he was taken to an orphanage when he was days old, and he lived in that orphanage for two and a half years. And what takes so long? I honestly, it sounds weird that I can't say, but I, what it really is is a ton of paperwork, and then parental. They have to get the mother to agree. Obviously, that's so important. Then they have to do their search for the father that I sort of explained he did with Mateo in the United States, search for his father. And then after that, they have to make sure that there's no family in South Africa that wants to adopt him. Oh, and I, I do actually like, I like that part. I think that's, that's interesting. Good, you know? So they give, yeah. they give the mother's family or the father's family the opportunity to say, hey, if anyone wants to adopt this baby, you get first choice. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so wow. if you want to adopt that. this child from South Africa, you may. You may adopt him. And that's exactly what did not happen for him. I mean, he was not chosen by any family in South Africa. And so they put him into the pool of international adoption. And basically, a social worker you know, reads his case file, decides what kind of family would suit him best. And then Jamie and I, and this is, this is, it sort of blows my mind, but we are the first gay fathers from the United States to ever be able to adopt from South Africa as a married couple. So that was big in the sense of oh, yeah, for the program, yeah. you know, um, and I'm glad that that precedent has been set for other couples. I'm so glad that exists. Um, yeah. So it, it's painfully long though. You know, you think you, I've been, I've been to his orphanage twice and you look at, you look at him and his little buddies he grew up with and you think like, you know, yes, they were well taken care of at the, in their orphanage, but, you know, you can't, no one would ever say that that environment is better than a loving home from the start, you know? Right. There's got to be a way to expedite all that, all of that, I would think. Well, it's, it, it pains my heart to think that he was in an orphanage for two and a half years when he could have easily been with his dads in the States starting his life. You know, because when you're in an right. orphanage, it's almost like you're on pause. You're waiting. 100%. You're waiting. Your life's on pause. You're a child. You're two. You don't know what's happening. So many bad things can happen to you, um, you know, in, in, a, in an orphanage. So, you know, and I, I understand the bureaucracy of it, but it pains me to think that you guys could you guys could do that much quicker than making him wait two and a half years. And when I say you guys, I mean these countries. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, it, and it, I mean, it amazes me. I didn't mean to interrupt, but it amazes me that there's so much put into a dot. Like there's, there's like an average of 443,000 foster kids 
in the United States. And it amazes me how there's a lots of people have a hard time adopting a kid. It's like that there's too much work involved. If a loving family wants to adopt a kid, let them adopt the kid. I mean, who, who, what, who cares if they got a DUI when they were 22 and now they're 50 and they want to adopt a kid. Right. Like that, should, I mean, that doesn't know, matter like, anymore. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, there, you know, there's obviously there's uh, you want a, a responsible, a responsible, um, what do I want to say, a responsible investigation of a family, right? You want to make sure that the family is, is financially and emotionally and educationally all set up to taking a child. But the amount of paperwork, both domestic and internationally, that it requires for you to adopt a child, to me, is is just uh, sort of outrageous. You know, like because also, why would someone? You know, a lot of the time the worry is that you're going to then uh, traffic the child or something. But why would someone right. spend all of this time? You know, you could cut that in half, but no one would spend, two, I don't think people would spend two years, even if it was a year, of endless paperwork, going to a notary, getting the FBI to fingerprint you, having social workers come into your home, check out your entire home, interview you together, interview you separately. Um, Interview all your friends and shit. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Get recommendation letters of personal and professional nature. Why would you go through all of that to then traffic a child? Like it just, there's different ways. That just doesn't make sense to me. You know? Well, we've gone, Um, we've gone so far, you know, in the fifties, you could just buy a baby. Oh, Mary Lou Johnson's having a kid next door and she doesn't want it. I'm going to give her a thousand dollars and now I have a baby. And then I registered it (laughs) and that's kind of the way it was. And so now, but now it's swung so far and I agree with you. You definitely need to, to investigate the people who are adopting a kid. But I think that the bureaucracy of it is too long, which allows these children to stay in possibly dangerous foster homes, possibly dangerous orphanages, when it should be a quicker response to get them into the loving home that they need to be at. Yeah. I mean, it just imagine, I mean, like James, my husband always says, he always says, just imagine if everyone in the world um, who could do it adopted one child. What, what would this world look like in terms of, you know, different families and understanding of rate of, of racial issues and, um, and, and just what, how could we, how could we help? Now I'm all for people having their own children. Like I never want to, I would never want someone to listen to this and think, Oh, he's, he's saying I should have had my own children. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm, but I am saying, you know, if you're going to have like three and four kids, I mean, you know, imagine if you just adopt one and then not now imagine every family that has three and four kids is adopting just one child. Imagine how that changes the landscape of the world, you know, and really the understanding of, of what we are, which is a global society at this point. I think, I think a lot of people are afraid to adopt children, you know, and I'll be honest with you, like the idea of adopting an eight or a nine year old who is possibly completely fucked up. Cause you know, I was fucked up at eight or nine years old. Like if I would have been adopted by another family at eight or nine years old, I was a mess. I was a mess, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And if I had a loving family who would have taken me in, they would have probably returned me. (laughs) They would have said, this bitch is crazy. So I, I understand the thought of the fear of someone saying, oh my God, this, this kid was raised in a domestic abusive family and they're going to have a lot of work. You're, if you're adopting like an eight or a nine-year-old from a, a broken home and there's a lot of abuse, that is your full-time job. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, that, that is right. going to be 
a lot of work. And I think some people are like, like Matt and I, you know, we thought about um, adopting because of course we were going to, we, if we were going to have a kid, we would adopt, but we were never both at a hundred percent. And of, and I think if you're a gay couple and you're going to adopt, you better both be at a hundred percent. You want it. There should be none of this. Well, I guess, you know, that's no. yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. No, you have too much, too much work. I mean, it's too much, you know, but too it, hard, really. Right. You know, it, it breaks my heart. I'm not going to cry again, but it breaks my heart <laughs> to think that, you know, all these kids who have had fucked up childhoods are just sitting there waiting for someone to love them because we know being loved is one of the most important things that we need to become functioning humans and they don't have love. They're tossed from foster home to foster home and it's because their parents were fuck ups and that pisses me off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have this I have this frustration that I'm 47 and I'm still paying a therapist $95 an hour to deal with my fucked up childhood cuz my parents were awful. Like I I, know. I get so mad about that every time he credits my credit card $95 I'm like if my mother was alive I'd fucking <laughs> send the bill to her. <laughs> I think we should have a law that if you had fucked up parents and you have to be in therapy for it, your parents if they're still alive, they should pay the bill. There you go. <laughs> ah, I should run I mean, for Congress. So, like what, what you went through, I mean, that is, I mean, that's, that's a, I mean, it's just really heartbreaking, you know, and, and to know that there are kids that continually go through this kind of shit, it's just, it's heartbreaking, man. It's a, I've always, I mean, I've known your story for quite a while and I just, you know, I think, yeah, I did cry when I first learned about it. It's just, I really, and look what you've done with yourself. I mean, you've really gone out there and, and um, you make people laugh, you make people smile and, and you're also, I think I can also say, like, knowing you, that that's not you all the time. Like, you're also just a really authentic guy, you know, that you're just a really honest dude who's uh, got such a good heart. And I think, so out of all of that, that you went through, through no choice of your own, you've come out the other side and, you know, hopefully now allowing people to have a space to talk about their stuff. I mean, that's incredible, the work that you've done with this podcast. I think that's wonderful. Well. Well, thank you very much. I won't deny any of that. All of that was correct. <laughs> but you know, one thing that one thing that is important if you're listening or anyone who's had a fucked up childhood and now they're adults, you have to accept what happened to you because it's made you who you are today. So mm -hmm. as much as I hate my childhood and I hate what my adopted father did to me and whatnot, like, like when I was growing up, it was always Joey needs a father. Joey needs a father. No, I think Joey would be fine without one. <laughs> Getting one actually right. was the problem. Was um, the worst. Yeah. But you know, a lot of people dwell on their past and I do talk about it a lot on the podcast that I was molested by my adopted father, but it's it's my narrative. It's, it's created me to, it's who I, it's because of that, why I am who I am today. And it's because when I was a little kid, I couldn't tell everyone what was happening to me. So I was funny, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. if you're funny and you're making everyone laugh, they think everything's great. And they think, oh my God, this guy's funny. So in my mid twenties, when I'm a young gay guy and I'm out at the bar and there's 10 people standing around me and I'm telling jokes and stories about shitting myself in the bar and everyone's laughing, hmm. they don't have right. to know all the pain that's really deep down inside. And that's a whole different no, episode. <laughs> yeah. I, have one, yeah. I have one final question for you and thank sure. you. Um, thank you for coming on, but I have one final question oh. for you. 
You know, when Will and Grace came out in the 90s, it really opened up people's eyes to gay people. Like you have a gay lawyer, you have like, I remember my grandfather, I, I don't think he was homophobic. We never talked about me being gay. Like I was a 16 year old, I was a huge queen. Like, like let's not deny it. I mean, if you didn't know I was gay, you were Helen Keller. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we and I remember he loved Will and Grace. Do you think that the TV show Modern Family that just went off the air, do you think that helped people who didn't understand same-sex marriages, same-sex parents? Do you think that opened their eyes? Do you think that TV show did any good? Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. I mean, we, you know, sometimes I think we can put arts in the corner and, and talk about how uh, it's not really, you know, why they get paid so much and whatnot. And why, you know, what is the, what is the reason that we place so much, so much, uh, I guess, attention, um, on certain, certain, um, entertainment shows or anything. But I think that when you have a show like Modern Family, or really just any show now has gay characters in it, right? Most shows I feel like have gay characters in it. It really takes it into someone's home and, um, people are allowed to sort of like sit there and they may not have a friend who is gay or trans or in a um, polyamorous relationship or in a, like whatever, anything, right? Or deaf or blind or whatever. But if they can see a character who is, and you're watching their life unfold in your living room, I feel it's, it's not so different than having a friend who is. And you're on a sort of a weekly basis able to um, feel like perhaps these people are not only your friends, these characters are friends, but they also that you enjoy watching. They make you laugh and make you cry and whatever. Um, it, it changes the way that you do your attitudes change the way that you do see the world. Will and Grace certainly did that. Um, I'm sure there were other shows uh, in the you know in the what 70s and 80s that changed the way that people saw black families. And and um, I still think we need to do more work with that in terms of like the American Indian population, Native American populations. Like there's just no visibility of these people. Um, you know, I, yeah, I think it's done an enormous, um, it's an enormous job to change it. And and I hope that continues. Yeah. I hope that uh, continues in so many different ways, right? Yeah, I think it will. And I was one, and I wanted to ask you that because I thought it was relevant to your life because you guys are gay. Well, I shouldn't say gay parents, your parents, but you happen to live a homosexual hot lifestyle. I added the hot <laughs> just because. All right, let's play. Before I let you go, all the, all the heterosexuals yeah. listening, their butts just puckered when I said that. Um, <laughs> Um, and you know, this is the first, this is the first episode that I'm not editing. So everything that oh, okay. is, there's no editing on this episode. I was challenged by someone that I know on the radio to say, record an episode where you don't edit. So all your fuck ups just come out live and see what it's like. See how you do with recovering when something doesn't go the way you think it's going to go. So this nice. is the first one of nice. those. So God help us. All cool. right. Before we go, <laughs> I want to play my game. Let's get grounded. I want you to pick an airline and then you're going to answer the question that I ask you from that airline. American Airlines, JetBlue, Delta, Spirit, Frontier, or United? Okay. I'm going to go with JetBlue. JetBlue. All right. Everyone picks JetBlue. They, everyone must love JetBlue. All right. On a flight from Los Angeles to Sydney, if you could sit next to any famous person, dead or alive, who would it be and why? So my, I've always, always wanted to, and I've met her twice, but I've wanted to have like a prolonged conversation with her is Angelina Jolie. Um, <laughs> I reason, brought her up. I compared just, you to her. You did. I know. That's hilarious. You, you guys could talk about your African babies. It'd be amazing. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I've always wanted to talk with her at length about um so many different issues, more, less about her acting and more about uh, what she's done with the United Nations and her role in the uh, in the world. Yeah. See, that's so respectful and professional. I'd want to know why she carried her husband's blood around or somebody's blood around on her neck. <laughs> like, see how we're different. You're so educated. I went to the I went to Chuck E. Cheese University. <laughs> Thank you so much, Garen. I really uh, appreciate you coming yeah. on the show. I learned a lot today about adoption. I'm still not going to adopt, but I appreciated this conversation Thanks. so much. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really am very grateful for the opportunity, and I just always love talking to you. So uh, for those of you who, who just know him from his podcast, honestly, you're such a good dude. You're such a good dude. Matt is so lucky. Make sure he knows that. Oh, he, and, uh, I remind yeah. him hourly. I, I, I will walk out of this room and say, do you know how lucky you are to be married to me? And he'll say, yes, <laughs> I do. <laughs> well, please tell yeah, your no, husband. Thank you so much. Uh, please tell your husband I said hi and give your baby boys a kiss for me, and I'll talk to you soon. I'll talk to you soon, man. Okay, take, take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye. Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed this week's episode of Grounded with Flight Attendant Joe, please subscribe to the podcast. You'll get alerts when new episodes air. Also, check out Flight Attendant Joe on Facebook and Instagram. And if you still haven't had enough of me, <laughs> check out the blog at www.flightattendantjoe.com.